another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 18th, 2008, and this is episode, believe it or not, 100. In 11 of the Survival Podcast, which is always is uh, one man's view of the changing times and the changing world and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't, dictated as almost always uh, from my personal mobile studio, which is my little 2006.5 uh, Jetta Diesel TDI as I make my commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas over about 50, 55 miles this morning, and we share my morning drive together as friends, and uh, hopefully we can learn something from each other. Unlike your typical radio show, I can't take people calling in while I'm driving and recording to uh, you know an MP3 recorder. Uh, so this broadcast is never live, but it's usually published within about, oh, I guess I get it up with about an hour of uh, the time that it's recorded. Uh, you can send me feedback. You can send it to Jack at the Survival Podcast.com by email. Uh, that's one way to do it. You can use the contact form on my website. Or you can uh, interact with myself and everybody else, the uh, close to a thousand other members now in the forum. Uh, that we have, which you can get to by going to the survivalpodcast.com and you'll have a link there to the forum and you can go to the forum and meet with other people and there's lots of uh, boards and uh, discussion groups there that you can in- involve yourself with and uh, I mean, you can, on our forum you can discuss anything from uh, kind of the urban homesteading, very uh, modest philosophy to the uh, to the real hardcore survivalist viewpoint to uh, the tinfoil hat stuff. I mean, you name it, you can discuss it. Everybody's friendly. People that aren't friendly on our forum generally don't last long on our forum. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, but nobody's entitled to insult anybody else, so it's a safe forum to be involved with. Uh, we try to keep it that way. And I have a hell of a group of guys that do just an awesome job as moderators there as volunteers. So you see the guys there that are moderators occasionally, just give them a thank you because, uh, you know, they don't make any money for what they do. They just uh, they just do it because they want to help the community grow. Uh, on that note, I will put a link to uh, a thread in the forum right now from this podcast. We're getting ready to put out some survival podcast T-shirts. So we have a poll going about what slogan to put on the back and to give me some ideas on colors and uh, please take a look at the thread and you'll see that I've already limited the colors severely. I'm trying to get down to one or two colors uh, for the first run because I have to stock you know multiple sizes and multiple styles of every version of the shirt that we do and I want to make sure that people buy these things before I end up with a garage full of boxes of shirts. Those of you wanting to make fun of my misspelling on the forum. So that kind of knocks out a little bit of house cleaning. Today's, uh, well one more thing I want to tell you guys. Tomorrow um, I am going to give away not one but two gun safes from uh, Center of Mass. Um, they told me if I had the addresses of the winners to them by Monday, they could guarantee delivery before Christmas. Uh, so instead of doing one this week and one next week, I'm going to go ahead and tomorrow I'll be giving away the final key lock safe. From 
from center of mass. These are in-car gun safes for storing things like handguns in your vehicles in a more secure way than just being in your vehicle. And then the uh, the big prize is a biometric one, which you record your fingerprint into, and you can actually record the fingerprints of multiple users into, and you simply swipe your finger across the little biometric sensor, and your safe opens. Uh, that retails for, I believe, about 180 bucks. So I'll be giving away those two gun safes tomorrow, so you'll want to tune in early, pay attention to what's going on. And I probably won't run the numbers real high tomorrow on response rates, because I want to be able to have a winner uh, for both units to center of mass uh, on Friday instead of on Monday to guarantee if you want a Christmas delivery, you're going to get a Christmas delivery. All right. So moving on, what are we going to talk about today? Today I'm going to do another kind of a user feedback thing, kind of an on-the-fly, just some things that have been coming in lately, asking me questions, asking me my opinion, asking me what you should do, things like that. And because, again, I'm in my car, and even though it's not icy today, which is why I canceled the show yesterday, uh, it's raining, it's nasty, it's gray, visibility sucks. Uh, so I have no script. I don't even have a note card to glance at because I have to keep my eye on the road today. Uh, so if I don't quite get your question right, you're thinking, that was my question or that was my statement, don't get upset. I'm doing the best I can trying to recall what I might have read two or three days ago that you have sent me. Uh, the first one came to me from uh, a guy somewhere in the Midwest. It was like Indiana, Illinois, somewhere like that. It might have been neither one, but it was up in that Midwest area. Uh, it might have been Michigan near Detroit, uh, which is kind of a tough area to be in right now. And basically said, hey, you know what, me and my girlfriend, I think they were going to get married, I'm not sure, uh, we're working real hard at trying to be good survivalists. And we're debt free, but we're also broke. So we, we have no debt, but we have very, very low income. We barely can pay our bills as it is. We do have a few guns. We are storing some food. Uh, we are looking for second jobs, but we feel stuck. Like we've reached like a plateau, basically. Well, where do we go? What do we do next? Where do we go from here? And, uh, you know, it's, it, I, I, I do what I can to help counsel people, folks, but I'm not. I'm not a financial advisor, and I'm not a lifestyle advisor. All I can do is give you my opinion. And again, when somebody sends me an email like that, I have a limited amount of information available uh, to me, so I have to just kind of instinctively guess what situation most people are in. But here's what I'd say. Number one, thank God, or whatever you believe in, that you don't have any debt right now, and that you're aware of this today. There are so many people that were, were at a place like you are at today, and they struggled, and they worked, and they finally started to make some real money. They got a better job, they got a second job, they started a business, whatever it was, they improved the income bracket. And because they did without for so long, because they didn't get into this mentality when they were broke, the first thing they do is fill out the very first pre-approved credit card application that comes to them in the mail. And then they think, you know what, I'm just going to go out and buy some nice things for the house that we need anyway, and I'll pay them off over a year. Okay, This is how the train starts with debt, right? And, and what you think to yourself is, man, I've worked my ass off for so many years, I deserve this. And you're marketed to that way. You know, These companies that sell you the credit card or sell you the stuff you buy with the credit card market to you as you deserve deserve this, right? Well, what you deserve is freedom and liberty, and you will not have it with debt. So the first thing I can advise you to say, to tell you right now is, you, since you're working, since you're aware, since you're struggling, since you're not complacent, since you're not willing to stay where you are, you will improve your situation, period. 
the biggest thing you can do for yourself today is anchor yourself in the reality that you survived and you did okay where you're at today. So that anywhere you go from here is better. And you don't need to decorate it with pretty stuff and shiny stuff and fancy credit cards, right? And home equity lines of credit. So commit yourself to continuing to live the way that you live right now for about six months longer than you have to. Alright, unless you're going to do something else, which I'll talk about here in a second. But what that will enable you to do is as your income increases, by not immediately spending it by getting a nicer place to live or buying more stuff, it will give you the ability to save money. And you'll start to understand the value of your own time and effort. And you'll respect your own efforts more. And as you then begin to move somewhere else, do so in a very gradual move up type situation. Now, the other thing I want to say, though, is just something brings with Detroit in this person, or someplace in Indiana where I know times are really tough right now, economy-wise. Since you weren't married and you had no kids, if you're, and you didn't sound like you were getting a lot of support from family, this may be a time to consider relocation. You may want to start looking for a job somewhere in a part of the country that's doing better, that's more resistant to the recession that we're in, that has a lower cost of living than that part of the United States, which has a relatively high cost of living, and see if you can't move up simply by moving away. Because it's probably not the best place for a survivalist to be anyway. And there's a lot of small towns in, you know, kind of uh, suburb type areas that is an interim step to an eventual retreat, if that's what you want, might make a lot better sense. And I mean, you're welcome down here in Texas, Any, anybody is. Uh, we believe that anybody who comes here and contributes uh, is, is welcome in this state. And uh, there's a lot of people coming here because our state's doing so well. And, and, you know, some states in the West right now are doing very well. States that people don't think of, like, believe it or not, North Dakota and Wyoming, because they have very, very low tax rates and very low costs of living and small government. So, you know, maybe that's something to consider as well. But the biggest thing I can say is, since you're aware, keep working on what you're working on. Keep believing in yourself, and as you achieve greater success... Let that success build up in the form of cash reserves before you start figuring out what to spend it on. If you do that now, you'll never have to go through the painful experience that so many of us have gone through with, how the hell did I amass $19,000 in credit card debt? Why do I have two cars that each have over $20,000 worth of uh, loans still left on them? Why do I have a house that's a $200,000 house and I really should have bought a $100,000 house and I owe 200000 How the hell did I get into $350,000 worth of debt? All right. And a lot of people, when you're in this like struggling point in your life, you're young, you're just getting started, uh, you've got your first or second real job maybe, and you're making low wages, you can't ever see yourself amassing that kind of thing. It seems impossible. It seems like, I don't have to worry about getting $300,000 worth of debt. No one's going to give me credit. And the danger of thinking that way is you don't prepare yourself for your own success. And when you start to have success, the trap is laid in front of you. And uh, they make it look really good. They make it look really nice. So my uh, father was teaching me how to trap foxes. And he would show me how to bury the, the, the trap and how to hide everything and how to make the, the, you know, the bait not easy to get to. There was some difficulty for the fox. He had to kind of dig the bait out to get it. And I said, why don't you just throw it on top of the set, Dad? If he sees it, it'll get, you know. He said, you know what, when you make it too easy, 
or too hard, the fox knows it's a trap. The key is to make it look normal and natural, like something he should be finding anyway. And then if you put it that way in front of him, he's a lot more likely to step in the trap. And, and the credit card companies and the marketing agencies of the world have gotten very, very good at setting that type of trap for our people. So be aware of it, stay away from it. Okay, here's another question that came in um, came in yesterday. Guy basically said, hey, um, could you do a show on getting started with hunting? And I did a show on, I think, just basic hunting techniques, and I did a show on archery hunting. So you can look those up on the site. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and search for hunting. Uh, but, he, you know, the way he asked the question, I don't think those shows really were that great for, for what he wanted anyway because he was basically saying, I don't know anything about hunting. I've never been hunting in my life. I've got a gun, I've got a shotgun, and I've got an air rifle. And uh, we've got game in the area. I think he lived out in California somewhere. And uh, if I had to, I guess I could figure out what to do. And I've actually thought about zapping a squirrel in my backyard and barbecuing him up just to prove to myself I could do it. There's nothing wrong with barbecuing a squirrel as long as what you're doing is legal in your area. Make sure you're not going to get yourself into trouble for that. Um... You know, you can do that if you want to, but I, I think that if you, it, it, and this question kind of came from a standpoint of, I really don't want to take up recreational hunting. You know, that's kind of what I got out of it. I want to know that I, I know what to do if I have to, if I end up in a situation, a survival situation, where hunting's required. You know, shit hits the fan and i got to get some food, or I get lost somewhere, or whatever it is. I want to know what to do. And, and I kind of got to tell you then, if that's what you want, if you actually want to be able able to be prof- become proficient as a hunter, then you need to take up recreational hunting. Because this is a lot like gardening. You know, I've told you, you don't wait until you need food to plant a garden. Right? You don't wait till you think you need food to plant a garden. Because your first garden, you're going to make some real mistakes with. You're going to screw some things up. Things are not going to work. You're going to plant plants that people are going to say, oh yeah, they grow great around here. They don't grow great in your area. Right? Oh, they, they handle the summer heat. Now, that variety doesn't really handle the summer heat very well. Uh, your soil looks good. Yeah, your soil's nitrogen deficient. You didn't add enough compost. Right? You don't have enough microactivity going in your first year. And you'll make these mistakes. These mistakes will teach you and you'll become more proficient and more competent. That is so much more true when it comes to hunting. When you first go hunting, especially if you don't have, in this case, my dad never took me. I don't know anybody that hunts. I don't, so I don't have, he can't have like a mentor, right? Um, a hunting mentor that's hunted before to, to teach you the ropes. If you just go out there yourself, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. So you want to make your mistakes and you want to miss that shot and you want to scare that that game and not get a shot at. You want to do all that stuff when it don't matter. When if you screw it up, you're still going to go home and throw a steak on the grill and eat. You don't want to wait until you're in a situation where if I don't kill this bird, I don't eat tonight before you actually pick a shotgun up and try to knock a flying bird down out of the air. Right, so there's kind of a couple faces, and I, I you know, I, I probably can do a whole show on this, but trying to condense it into just a listener feedback show, you, you need to become proficient with your weapons. And if you want to be a serious hunter, I'd say that to that little arsenal of an air rifle and a shotgun, you want to add at least a 22 rifle. And if you really want to like hunt deer and stuff like that, I mean, you can hunt with a shotgun with slugs or what have you. Maybe you get a good slug barrel. I didn't tell you didn't tell me what kind of shotgun you have, but if you have like an 870 or a Mossberg or something.
something like that, or Winchester's pump gun, and all these other shotguns. They make barrels that are specifically for shooting these these Sabo slugs, which are very accurate out to you know 100 even 200 yards. So that would might be less expensive than buying a centerfire rifle. Uh, and a lot of them, like some of the 870 barrels, even have like a cantilever on them. So you get this uh, rifle ba- rifle slug barrel for your 870. It's got a cantilever you can mount a scope on. So since that's attached to the barrel, that scope stays zeroed. So you can take that barrel on and off that, that shotgun, and that scope will stay zeroed. You can put your smoothbore back on, do your small game and bird hunting. That's a versatile way to use a shotgun and keep your costs down. But, uh, you know, a, a true hunting arsenal in, in America today, from a firearm standpoint, is a 22 rifle, a shotgun, and either a 12 or 20 gauge or 16 gauge, you know, whatever your preference is, uh, a 22 uh, and a centerfire rifle, something uh, 30 caliber. Depending on where you live, you live in the East Woods where you don't get long shots, a 30 30 is more than adequate. I, I personally think a 306 is about the most versatile big game round in America that most people can shoot well in dealing with the recoil. So you, you have to have your arsenal put together. Uh, that said, if you just want to go out and do some small game hunting with your shotgun, you can do that. What you'll want to do, though, is you'll want to find a, a range somewhere around you and go take some skeet lessons. Go go take some sporting clays lessons, something like sporting clays is probably better for the aspiring hunter. You know, start to learn how to swing on a bird and how to, to how to lead and how to, uh, you know, not stop the gun and not pick your head up and get a coach. You know, those guys don't charge a lot of money to come out and kind of coach you through two or three rounds, maybe over two or three weeks. Uh, and and they'll, that'll take you to a higher degree of proficiency much faster than if you just go out there. Because what will happen to the aspiring shotgunners that don't get any coaching at all, you'll never figure out what it is you're doing wrong. In fact, the first time your coach tells you what you're doing wrong, you're not going to believe him. He'll tell you, you picked your head up. You stopped the gun. You were over the target. You were under the target. You weren't far enough ahead. You'd be like, yeah, I was, right? Don't do that to him because he knows what he's doing. That's why he has the job. And he can see what you cannot because he's not dealing with recoil. He's not dealing with the anticipation that the bird's going to break, anything like that. He's just watching you, all right? So that's another thing. Um, You need to scout the area. The real work in hunting is not during hunting season. It's before hunting season. The guys that consistently take big deer, especially guys that hunt publicly accessible, land or private land where landowners give permission, not this deer lease stuff in Texas where you set up a feeder and you show up, you wait for the feeder to go off and a deer come, okay? Guys that go out on public land and hunt hardcore real hunting and get good deer every year. Those guys spend a lot of hours in the woods in the winter, in the spring, in the summer, in the early fall before season starts. And they pattern deer, and they know where deer are moving, and they know the area. So the best thing you can do is start taking walks in an area that you will be hunting, even when you're not hunting. And decide what kind of game you want to hunt. Do you want a small, a small game, large game? But do some hunting. I think one of the uh, the most overlooked and uh, most educational game animals in America is the squirrel, the various tree squirrels. Good eating. They're actually pretty smart little critters. Now, if you want to shoot one in your backyard while he's sitting on a sunflower seed feeder, um, that's pretty easy to do. All right, he sits there and you shoot him. You go out in the woods after a wild squirrel, they know they're being hunted. And uh, hunting them alone particularly, uh, you'll deal with some real challenges. And you'll have to make shots. You'll have to thread shots uh, through different branches and stuff like that. So it's a good starting point. In most states, you're going to have to take a hunter safety course. Since you've never hunted, odds are you've never taken a hunter safety course. I would 
would advise you if you've never hunted, you're an adult and you want to start hunting, don't do the mail order hunter safety course where you watch a DVD and fill out the paperwork. Because you're robbing yourself of an opportunity if you go in person to meet some people. Now, it's probably gonna, you're going to probably be surrounded by kids in most states. A lot of kids, their dads will come with them and hang out with them, or in some cases their moms will come hang out with them. It will let you meet some people that already hunt in the area around where you are. You'll meet a local. Usually those courses are done by a local game warden. Uh, so you can talk to him as well after class and maybe start to pick up on some places around where you live that have some decent success rates. So that kind of is in it in a nutshell, but you need to become proficient with your weapons. You need to learn the area that you'll be hunting in. And the best thing you can do is see if there's like a rod and gun club or any place where you can meet fellow sportsmen and maybe meet some folks that either would take you hunting with them or go hunting with you once in a while uh, or at least give you some advice of where to go. Now, you'll find that people that that have hunted the same place for years, they kind of have a spot that's kind of special to them and their family. They're not real quick to share that stuff. Don't expect it. Uh, But generally speaking, they'll at least tell you, well, you know, there's state game lands over here and this area out in front has a lot of deer and there's there's maybe less, less animals but less pressure back in the back of this. They'll give you some ideas of places that most people that already hunt know anyway. Right? It'll get you a good starting point. So that's my best advice that I can give to that question. And uh, moving on to some, again, another completely different uh, question and a completely different subject. Uh, somebody wrote in and, and, and asked me about water. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was, I said that, you know, large amounts of water storage are important. You should do it if you can, but there's only so much water you can practically store because it's bulky and it's heavy. And if you have to bug out, you can only take so much with you. You, know, you can't take a 30-day supply for a family of four with you in a pickup truck. You, I mean, you would have nothing else in the truck and you probably still wouldn't have enough water uh, because they say that we should all have about uh, for everything from you know drinking to bathing everything the, the average person needs about six to eight gallons a day so call it eight four times eight is 32 um, 32 times 30 is about a thousand gallons it's not quite but it's right there so uh, you know you have to understand your limitations with water, but the person that asked about this said, you know, I, I get what you're saying, and didn't think I was saying the water's not, you don't need water, water's not important. But what are some things you can do once you've gotten, you know, some other basic things done, you know, that are, you know, either low cost or no cost to store water, or if you're going to make an investment, how would you do it? What are some of the best ways you can use to store water and to make sure water's accessible? Well, the cheapest thing you can do is get some good rain barrels, and set up, you know, some downspouts off of your roof of your house and start catching rain. And, you know, most rain, you can get rain bottles that are 50 gallon range. So if you set up two or three of those, you're talking two to 300 gallons of water. Now that water obviously is not real suitable for drinking, especially straight out of the barrel. However, as long as you want to use an opaque barrel that does not let sunlight in so no algae can get growing and things like that, and maybe throw a little bit of chlorine bleach in them once in a while to keep them purified, and uh, not a lot, uh, you know, 50 gallons of water, a half a cup, and it'll evap, you know, it'll kind of go away over time. Uh, we'll, 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 and this is not for drinking, all right? This is just to keep little creatures from living in there, all right? 
if you do that, and if you had to drink it, it's as simple as boiling your water. All right. And, you, and here's a little fact point for people. Uh, most people think, well, you have to boil water for five minutes, or you have to boil water for ten minutes, right? Uh, well, there's always some kind of time limit that people give these rules of how long you have to boil water. This is how long you have to boil water to sanitize it where it's safe for human consumption. Zero minutes. I'm not kidding. It's zero minutes. I'll put a link to uh, the information about it. But it's basically that once water reaches 180 degrees and holds that temperature for a certain length of time, it never has to boil. So if you bring it to boiling, and the time it takes the water to move from 180 to 212, that time that it needs for sanitization is dropping. And by the time that the differential's made up, your water's pure. So in a lot of survival situations, you should not boil water for five minutes because, one, you create greater amounts of evaporation, you lose some water. And two, if you're using a fuel source that can be shut off, you're wasting fuel. So there's a little uh, bonus along the way with water storage. But that water can be purified simply through the action of boiling it. Um, you can actually purify water, believe it or not, as long as it's clean as far as particulates. Uh, by putting it in the sun for about eight hours in a clear bottle, the UV light will kill most, not all, but most pathogens. So if you had no other recourse, that's something else that you can do. But the big thing with rain barrels is if you get in a situation where water is in short supply, it can be used for crop irrigation if you're growing your own food. It can be used for bathing, and you can use it, as long as the sewer lines aren't backed up, to flush toilets. All right? And to me, that's a huge deal, all right? Being able to get your toilet to flush by dropping a gallon of water in the back of it, that matters. You know, you know, there's, you know, if it's yellow, leave it, you know, whatever for a while. And But if it's brown, you don't want it there, right? And uh, if, if you're stuck at a house for a while uh, for, for some type of survival situation, it can make life a lot more bearable to not have to go like a bear in the woods or have to leave something. Thing, you know, you really can't even have that option. So, uh, big deal there. Another thing that I think is a good investment, this just goes after your debts are paid, folks, and you pay cash for this, is a pool. Uh, a pool is much like a rain barrel, and you don't really want to go out there with a glass and start dipping water out of it, but the water can be boiled, and you would want to boil pool water to boil the chemicals off of it. Uh, but if you know, if you treat your pool basically with, uh, with chlorine, uh, it's just at higher levels than is in your tap water anyway. Uh, and pool water can become drinking water if necessary, but it sure as hell will work for bathing, and it will work for irrigation, right? And it will work for flushing those toilets. So you can store a ton of water that way, and then you have a pool, which increases the resale value of your home in most situations, except people that are retards uh, that think a pool's dangerous. Um, and, uh, you know, you get an advantage there. Now, this is one of the places where, you know, if you are looking at it from a survivalist standpoint, especially if you're not looking at reselling your home and you're going to keep it, you may really want to consider an above-ground pool. You don't have to have it sitting way, way up in the air, but maybe you bury it halfway, you build a deck around it. That's kind of what we did. Now, the thing about that is if we had a one-foot flood, right, our pool water is still not contaminated. If we had a two-foot flood, our pool water is not contaminated. Our backyard would have to be under about three feet of water for that water to overlap into our pool. 
If you have an in-ground pool, obviously if you have any flooding at all, your pool water is contaminated with the stagnant water in the area. So that's something to consider as well. Um, but don't overlook the simplistic, all right? You finish a gallon of milk, right? You rinse out the uh, milk jug really good. You fill it up with water. You put the top on it. Water doesn't tend to really go bad if it's stored in a you know a cool dark place. It can pretty much last for years. I I, I don't know where this 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 belief is that like water in a jug is going to go bad. It just doesn't really happen. Right. If there's something in it that can grow, right, it, it, like a uh, some kind of uh, protozoan or something like that, it, it can multiply and, be, and become a problem. But generally speaking, water from your tap has no food source either. You just want to make sure that you rinse out that milk with like scalding hot water. But just a few jugs of water around to provide water if you lose water pressure for any length of time is a good thing. One of the things we do is we filled up about eight one-gallon milk jugs with water, not quite to the top to give them some room for expansion, put the tops on them, and we put those in the bottom of our chest deep freezer. Okay, and they just stay down there. And in the summer when I go fishing, I'll pull one out and I'll throw it in my cooler. And I'll use it to keep the cooler cool so I don't have to buy ice. Uh, and then I'll you know bring it home and I'll rinse it off and I'll throw it back in there. And I'll take a different one the next time. And, you know, a lot of times they're completely uh, unfrozen by the time I get home. And I'll dump them out, replace the water to get some rotation, get some water a little bit fresher, I guess. But this serves two purposes. One, there's an extra eight gallons of water that's just completely out of the way. Two, we can use it for keeping coolers and drinks cool and fish cool and stuff like that. And three, if I lose power, I have eight large blocks of ice that will help keep the food in the freezer frozen longer during the power outage. So those are some different ways I can, you know, give you kind of that are, that are not major, except for the pool, major costs uh, with with uh, water. Now, a well is a great option. I think a well is the best option, and it's something that if you want to really plan for long-term self-sufficiency independence, you should you should plan for. Where you live and how much effort it takes to put in a well has a lot to do with where that fits in your individual planning, though. There's people that live where the ground, you know, you go down two feet and you hit rock. And the water's 100 feet down. They hit, hit, hit you know, uh, a good water reserve that's going to be consistent and available. you got to go 100 feet. And you got a lot of rock. You might pay $5,000 or more to have that well put in. When we lived in Florida as a kid, one of my grandfathers decided he wanted to be able to water his lawn. And he didn't want to pay the big water bill, which was like 8 bucks, right? And uh, so he decided to have a well put in. Now... The soil there was sand. The water table was about 8 feet down. Uh, they put the well, I think, 12 or 13 feet down to make sure it was deep enough into the table that we wouldn't run out of water if the water table dropped during a dry part of the year. And they drilled the well with high-pressure water and a piece of pipe. Right? They basically ran the water just kept ramming the pipe until they got the head down to where they wanted and then they put the you know the, the pump head on it, and it was a couple hundred bucks. And I bet even today something like that would run around 500 bucks. So if you live in a place where it's that easy to put a well in, you might move it further up on your priority list because it's relatively low cost and easy to do. If you're going to have to pay five grand to put a well in, you have a good consistent supply of city water, right? Like I said, when you look at grids, the last thing to fail 
you know, is usually water. It'll fail after electricity, after phones, probably after gas, if you have gas service. Um, the water utility system pretty much could run itself if it had to. And they have backup generators and, uh, and different things like that in the pumping stations. And uh, it's one of the real priorities that government would make in a disaster scenario. It's at least keep the water flowing. Because people can live without food a hell of a lot longer than they can live without water. Doesn't say it's not a risk, and please, I don't want any more hate mail saying that I'm basically saying water's not important. I'm just saying you got to prioritize, and you got to have your plan. I keep saying this all the time. Whatever I tell you is my opinion and my advice, and all you can do is take that advice and take every other piece of advice you can get. Look at your own life and your own resources and say, this is how much I can do this week or this month or this quarter or this year. And this is the order that I'm going to put it in. Because you have to have your own plan and you have to buy into it. If you don't buy into it, you won't enact it. If I give you my plan verbatim, you'll never follow it. Because it will never directly apply to your life the way that the own plan that you create for yourself will. So I guess that's all I get to say on water today. Okay, I got another email yesterday. I had mentioned earlier this week in the one show I've done this week so far that... uh, I have a, a, a poor opinion of bailing out the auto workers, and I think it's a mistake, and that I think it's bad for our economy overall if we do it, that it'll suck if we don't, but eventually it's going to suck worse if we do. But during that, I made an off comment that, you know, a lot of the auto workers themselves, the guys that are working in the plants right now, um, are getting a, an unfair burden of the blame. And in the past, I've made statements that, you know, the UAW is out of control. Uh, they've burdened the companies with too much. They're killing themselves and destroying their own companies. Somebody wrote in and said, well, which one is it? Well, it's both. And here's what I mean by that. We, we hear on the news about this $70 an hour or higher labor rate for GM, Ford, Chrysler to build vehicles. And the American consumer and the American blue-collar worker that's never made anywhere near $70 an hour, that's maybe worked their ass off to get up to 18 is sitting there going, I don't want to hear your problems. right? Because if I made $70 an hour for 20 years, I would have saved enough. I wouldn't care if they laid me off. And you're going to get paid for another, you know, two years anyway at 95% of your pay grade. I've never made that much money in my life. So there's this this anger and this class warfare that's being created here. And it's not fair to the guy that goes to work every day at the GM plant. Because, folks, he's not making $70 an hour. He's probably making very close in an hourly wage to what the workers for Toyota and Mazda that work in the United States in plants in like Tennessee and San Antonio, Texas. Very close to a similar wage. All right? He's getting much better benefits, specifically health care. That's adding to the burden. But even that is not really killing Ford, Chrysler, and GM. There's two main sources that these unions either will have to concede on or eventually the companies will die. They cannot continue this way. One is the job bank system, which once a worker has a certain amount of tenure behind them, has been at the plant a certain amount of time, right? and I don't know how long exactly it is, 
But if you get laid off, they cut back at your plant, and they send you home, you don't just go draw unemployment like a new worker does. A brand new worker, been there six months, he's just on unemployment like anybody else. But a guy, 10-year guy at the plant, goes into this job bank system. He is then paid, I think, 90 or 95%. doesn't even matter if it's 80. It's insane. Percent of his salary to sit and do nothing for up to two years. That is killing them because when they lay people off, they don't save anywhere near as much. And they're still paying the guys full benefits. Alright? Now, we want to pay people's benefits, right? But... See, Mazda, Toyota, etc., they're not burdened with that. They don't do they lay you off, you're laid off. You're off the books. Until they call you back. The other one is retirement. And the medical coverage and the retirement payments that go with a person who retired from a UAW job. They have more benefits and better coverage than a retired member of our military. They're getting exceptional payments. Um and the money, here's the problem with that. I mean, it's great to believe in that your whole life. And these guys, I'm not saying wipe out their pensions, wipe out their benefits. But the amount that they've negotiated through the 80s and 90s for these people is excessive. It's, it's too much for the marketplace. And, and the problem is, these guys that are going, well, I worked 20 years, I worked 30 years, I deserve it. It was promised to me. If you keep holding your breath, you, instead of getting some, you're going to get none. I'm going to tell you that right now. You're going to get nothing because these companies will eventually just go under and fold. So the only way I could be for this bailout, any kind of a bailout, because what they're saying is they would loan the money. And if done right, loans to auto companies pay themselves back. All right, because we did this with Chrysler in the 80s. And I read Lee Iacocca's book, Where Have the Leaders Gone? And he talks about when he showed up at the White House with a check for so many billion dollars and met Reagan. I told Reagan, hey, I'm here to pay the, to pay the loan back. And Ron Reagan says, hey, Ron Reagan, okay, bastion of conservatism, right? The big dog for the conservatives says, Lee, nobody pays the money back. We, they didn't even know how, right? They didn't have a system in place to take the money. They had to put a system in place to even take the money because no one that had ever been bailed out that way had ever, ever repaid the money. Chrysler's the only one that had ever done it up to that point. Right? That's it. And if that's wrong, don't crucify me. That's out of Lee Iacocca's book. And, and this man was personal friends with Ronald Reagan, and they had many a conversation. And I highly recommend his book. I do not agree with Lee on a lot of things, but it's a very eye-opening look into both the Reagan and the Clinton presidencies and into Castro's Cuba, because Lee was very involved with these guys. So there's a little offshoot there. So, you know, that's how I feel about this thing with UAW. And uh, I don't work for the UAW. I never did. I just want to make sure that when you're angry with the UAW, be angry for, with them for the things they've done to destroy their company. Don't be mad at the guy that packs a lunchbox and goes off to work every day. Now, the other side of this is the guys that do that, they're like, give us this bailout so we can keep our jobs. Well, the problem is a lot of these guys are going to end up sitting in these job banks drawing these salaries. And folks, if you're in that situation, if you're an auto worker and you're in that situation, you have to ask yourself, does that really make financial sense? I know you think you need it. I know you think you're entitled to it, but it doesn't make sense for your company financially. Are they going to be able to survive and keep paying you if you keep doing that? All right. And the other thing is until people start buying cars again, how are you going to keep your job? 
Are you going to just start making cars to sit on a lot somewhere? There's millions of cars sitting on lots across all over the United States today. Toyota and Honda have problems right now moving their cars. People aren't buying right now. Production has got to decrease. Too many brands, too many models, and too many units. So the, the auto workers do need to lay people off, and they need to terminate some people. And those people need to go find new jobs in new sectors. And I'm sorry if you've been in that, you know, your family's been in that industry for 50 years. There's, there's a point where, you know, capacity exceeds demand, and that's the biggest problem in the auto auto industry today, the capacity now far exceeds demand. And as long as that's the case, none of these companies can stay as large as they are. And on the note of the automakers, I'd like to conclude with something today that I heard on talk radio. A gentleman called into a talk radio station about the auto bailouts I said, why don't we do this? Instead of giving the automakers $25 billion or $36 billion or $14 billion, why don't we take whatever amount of money it's going to be? Because someone's going to do it, right? If it's not Bush with the TARP money, it's going to be the Fed. Somebody's going to give these guys billions of dollars. It's going to happen. The American people can stand on their head and scream, and just like they screwed us over with the bailout to the, the financial sector, these guys are going to get their money, right? So since they're going to do it anyway, why don't we use it a little bit smarter? He said, why don't we start replacing all our government vehicles? And, and not like the Deuce and a Halfs and the, the Hemets and the Humvees that the Army and the Navy and the Marine Corps and all use uh, that have to go long distance. But all of these cars that all of these government officials and, and you know, kind of like military members that serve more in the civilian sector and things like that, there's millions of vehicles. Right? And these guys are driving like Tahoes. Highly inefficient uh, from a fuel standpoint. Why don't we have them driving things like Chevy Volts and Chrysler's new um, hybrids that are coming out? Why don't we take all that money, put it in a fund, and use it to replace every stinking government vehicle that could be replaced with one of these new, more fuel-efficient hybrid vehicles? And he said, you know, I don't want to spend the money at all, but since we're going to do it anyway, maybe this would be a smarter way to do it. Now, if we do that, there's going to be a lot more production by the big three of these hybrids, of these electrics, of these hydrogen fuel cells, all these other types of new technology are going to get produced more. Since they're produced at a higher level, economy of scale will take over. They'll be able to sell to the public at a lower price. Plus, all these millions of vehicles driving around will get recognition because people will be looking at them. People in the government sector will be trained on how to repair and maintain them. Ten years from now, they'll be going to start their own businesses in the private sector as this fleet of vehicles that right now most mechanics don't know how to work on have come up in quantity and volume. So the person buying one will be able to get them serviced. Plus, we'll create a big use fleet as the government starts to turn them over because they generally turn their vehicles over every five to ten years anyway. That'll create a secondary used market. All right? And what you got to do is you got to look at this whole thing, and you got to say, you know, this makes a lot of sense, right? This makes a ton of sense. I do want to point out something, though, and I'm not saying the plan itself is bad. It's probably a better plan than just giving these guys a bunch of money and saying fix your companies without fixing their companies, all right? You might let them go through chapter, chapter 11, reconstruction and renegotiation, and then give them these contracts to get them out of it, right? That might make a lot of sense, but... I just want to end this today with 
helping you start to think about something called unintended consequences. Because I just painted a very rosy picture of this idea. But there would be negative consequences to doing this. Here's what some of them are. Number one, there is already a weakened demand in the consumer market for vehicles across the board. As these government vehicles are being replaced and all of them are being sold used at a big discount to the public, which is where they would go, that would further suppress the demand for new vehicles. Now I can go buy a nice vehicle from the state of Texas at a big discount. All right. So the car dealerships do worse. All right. The production that would be spread across GM, Chrysler, and Ford, and we would spread that production. So it would all be Chevy Volts. There'd be Chevy Volts. There'd be the, the new Ford hybrids, the new Chrysler hybrids, going to all these different government sectors, right? Doesn't help the Ford dealership, the Chrysler dealership, or the GM dealership, or the Chevrolet dealership, because they're not going to be run through there. So. You're further suppressing their market by selling these used vehicles directly to the public. And at the same time, the production that's going on in their plants is not being run through their dealerships. Because running it through their dealerships would just be dumb. Now, does that mean it can't work? No. All it means is that there's an unintended consequence we have to think about. So, the reason I brought that up is I think it's important that... We pay attention to what's going on in politics, in the economy, in our government as survivalists. Because many of our biggest threats either come from there or we can look at those things and we can forecast how they'll impact us. The other thing is a survivalist, your job is not just to respond, it's often to avoid or prevent. And if you think about this, let's go to a wilderness survival situation for an analogy. You're on your way trying to find your way back to a place where there's people that can help you. You got lost. You come to a steep embankment. On that steep embankment is loose shale, right, and big boulders. And if you try to go down it, you'll probably cause a collapse and get crushed. So what do you do? You recognize the consequences of stupidity, and you don't do it. And even though you might have to go out of your way, you don't take that path and you go somewhere else. All right? We have to do the same thing with how we take positions and how we, and I think you should be contacting your, your elected officials and people have told me, I don't think we should do that because they won't listen. Trust me, they do listen, especially your state rep and your state senator. A lot of those guys might have only 100,000 people they even represent. A few votes matter to them a lot more than, let's say, the president, all right? Or even a senator, a federal senator that goes to Washington for you. The state guy that goes to your state capitol, he'll listen to you a little bit more. He has a little bit more incentive to pay attention to the individual voice, right? But when you're going to take a position or somebody's going to present something to you that sounds wonderful, no matter what it is, whether it's, it's a conservative idea and you're a conservative, it's a liberal idea and you're a liberal, it's a libertarian idea and you're a libertarian, I don't care what it is. I want you to think back to this little event and how something that sounds so perfect can still have unintended consequences. And that doesn't mean you don't do it. My point is, those unintended consequences will exist in every single situation. You have to look at any situation like a big long balloon, like the ones they make animals out of, and when you squeeze the balloon at any point, other points in the balloon swell. Nothing is free, despite the liberal mindset of 
free health care, right? Nothing is free. Somebody or something or some consequence always pays the bill. And if you're going to endorse something or back something, then you have to look at the consequence and say, the consequence is bad, but the benefit is better, and I'm willing to accept the consequence for the reward. And I've weighed the two, and I've made an informed decision. If you start doing that, not just with political and economics, but the things in your life, when you're buying something, when you're going to invest in something, always take that approach, and it'll put you a long way toward improving your lifestyle. This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.